0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Towers of Ivory and Steel, How Israeli Universities Deny Palestinian Freedom by Maya Wind, with an afterword by Robin D.G. Kelly, and a foreword by Nadia Abu Alhaj. Israeli universities have long enjoyed a reputation as liberal bastions of freedom and democracy. Drawing on extensive research and making Hebrew sources internationally accessible, Maya Wind shatters this myth and documents how Israeli universities are directly complicit in the violation of Palestinian rights. Academic disciplines, degree programs, campus infrastructure, and research laboratories are all-service Israeli occupation and apartheid, while universities violate Palestinians' right to education, stifle critical scholarship, and violently repress student dissent. Towers of Ivory and Steel is a powerful expose of Israeli academia's ongoing and active complicity in Israel's settler-colonial project. Out now, from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the second episode of Tharwa, The Dig's new series on 20th century Arab politics with historian Abdel Razak Tukriti. Tharwa is Arabic for revolution, it's a word that contains historical multitudes diverse political radicalisms and revolts that have swept across Arab lands over the past century. Today's episode is about the rise of anti-colonial politics across the Arab Middle East, the during the mandate period of British and French colonial rule, and Zionist settler colonization of Palestine as mass revolts swept Iraq, Syria, and Palestine throughout the 1920s and 30s. They were accompanied by an Arab nationalist ideology developed by intellectuals like Constantine Zurich and Sati al-Husri. By the 1940s, new parties were founded, shaped by these revolutionary episodes and ideologies. One of the most important, the Ba'ath Party, embraced a form of socialism, but contrasted its nationalist project against a communist movement taking root across the region, even as the dictates of the Comintern undermined their cadre on the ground. And this period gives us a window into the development of modern Islamist politics, a concept that we will also complicate as we discuss the story of Iz al-Din al-Qassam, a cleric who mobilized a sort of liberation theology to organize guerrilla struggle in Palestine. Before we get started, the dig only exists because of listener support, because of listeners like you. Okay, it is true. We have ads from book publishers and magazines about excellent books and excellent magazines, but that is a relatively small portion of our budget. Ads could be a much much larger portion of our budget if we advertised mail order mattresses and and things like that but we don't do that mostly just for like self-respect purposes so we keep this operation running and paywall free so that everyone all of you can listen without having to pay but that only works because listeners who can afford and who do step up to pay support the dig at patreon.com slash the dig we have mugs books tote bags to send you depending on where you live and how much you contribute and every donor of any amount at all gets our excellent newsletter delivered to your email inbox it's written by bed maybe it is so good and so if you can afford to contribute and you are ready to step up and support the dig please do so now that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n Thanks, and here's Abdelrazak Takriti, who teaches history at Rice University, a scholar of Arab and Palestinian revolutionary movements. He's the author of Monsoon Revolution, Republicans, Sultans, and Empires in Oman, and the co-author of The Palestinian Revolution Digital Humanities website, a really incredible resource that will be back online soon. Arab nationalism ultimately becomes the dominant form of Arab politics for quite a while after the Nakba and after the period of formal colonial rule, but its development starts under colonial rule. How did secular nationalism develop initially as an ideology and a politics? And, and who were the foundational thinkers and theorists like Constantine Zurich or Saty al-Husri? What what sort of intellectual and political milieus were they a part of? And what form of politics did they propose to the Arab world?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I think we, we, we need to distinguish between individual thinkers and movements. Now, I like to study movements and not just individual thinkers. And when I study individual thinkers, I like to look at their praxis, at the intersection uh, between uh, their political visions and their practices. Uh, which were often connected to movements uh, on the ground. So Sati al-Husari is part of a generation uh, of people of Arab origin uh, who had achieved relatively high rank in the Ottoman administration. Uh, He was a major expert on pedagogy, on education. Uh, He was very uh, well-versed in the European literatures on these subjects, but also was extremely fluent uh, in the Turkish language and in Turkish uh, affairs. In fact, he knew it uh, in many ways better than than Arabic. He came from Arab origins, but his his intellectual formation was very much developed uh, within the Ottoman framework. So by the time we get to the uh, dynamics of the great war and its aftermath and the collapse of the empire and its aftermath, when people, had this moment of having to choose where to go. This was, remember, Daniel, people forget, this was a multi-ethnic empire. It was a multi-ethnic empire, however, that had an Islamic character. Despite the fact that the Tanzimat had basically secularized some aspects of the political system, and despite the fact that the CUP also did the same, but you still had an important Islamic bond, that tied the Turkish populations, the Arab populations, but also I would, I would argue the, the Kurdish populations. That's why the last two nationalisms that developed really in the Ottoman Empire are the Arab nationalism and then later on, of course, Kurdish nationalism. It's because these populations were Muslim populations. So there was a connection with the, with the empire there and there was a formula uh, in which you could imagine in a nationalist world post-19th century, in a world where there was so much emphasis on the nation-state and there was so such a great push towards establishing the nation-state as the predominant model globally, there was still a potential to imagine ways in which the Ottoman Empire could adjust to that, certainly in areas where you had Muslim majorities. The Balkans, it was much more difficult. There were European pressures that... Uh, ensured uh, Ottoman disintegration there or the disintegration of Ottoman authority there, there were also pressures that made sure that uh, you cannot have a multi-religious reality in a place uh, like that. In the Arab lands, however, we had a different situation. And and that's uh, important to note because later on the nationalist story kind of overemphasizes the differences between Turks and Arabs in this period. You know, they say, you know, there was Turkish oppression, there was Turkification that led to the rise of a challenge, which is Arab nationalism, against this uh, tyrannical rule. Sometimes they even go as far as suggesting that it's a form of colonialism similar to the European one. Now, we, we know as scholars that that's not the case. There's been a huge amount of literature from the 90s, especially, that's been correcting that. Islamists in the Arab world never bought that story, by the way. That's the nationalist story, not the Islamic one. For them, the big tragedy is the loss of the Khilafah, and that was a defining moment. The ending, the abolition of the Khilafah in 1924 was a defining moment for people like Hassan Bennah, for example, who founds the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a defining moment uh, for the Palestinian thinker Taqiyyiddin Nabahani, who founds Hizb al-Tahrir, for example. You know, But within at least the secular nationalist tradition, there was this story. Now... Elements of it, though, are true. Just because it's exaggerated, does not mean that it's not entirely true. Because you did have the rise of a Turkish nationalist, and that put people like al Husari in a difficult position, because he had to choose now: does he go with the culture he got socialized into, which, and he could have easily gone to, to the Turkish side and became an official there, or does he go back to his Arab origins? And I think that dilemma affected a lot of people. Interestingly, a lot of the major Arab elites in this stage, intellectually, especially if they came from Muslim families, would have had Turkish mothers or Turkish, you know, it was so mixed. And same goes for Turkish elites. A lot of them had Arab mothers or, you know, it was a very mixed sphere. A lot of them spoke Turkish. And there's um, uh, interesting stories uh, when I was doing some research on the Bandung conference. I know that one way uh, Arab delegates, some of the uh, Arab delegates were avoiding having uh, their conversations understood uh, by others who who came from a younger Arab generation was to speak in, in Turkish. So they knew Turkish very well. They were absorbed into the imperial culture. This milieu, produces then a different party system, a different outlook. It had to reconfigure itself as a result of the collapse of the empire. So people like Salat al husari wanted a new society. Uh, they were influenced, of course, by the ideas they had acquired during their socialization in the Ottoman period. And they, they were committed to political modernity. They were committed to education. Sa'at al-Hussari becomes very influential in the educational sphere. And they were committed to what was then the fashionable trend, which is to think about uh, the nation as the vehicle for change, uh, for social and political and economic change. So the nation here becomes a a category that is especially important in an anti-colonial setting. And this is why I always warn people I sometimes feel uncomfortable even with the term Arab nationalism. It doesn't fully capture what it is. There's, it's a mix between nationalism and anti-colonialism. So it's an anti-colonial variant of nationalism. It has doses, you know, certainly in Salt al husris writings and other people's writings from that period. There, there's, a, there's a good dose of, you know, classical German-influenced nationalist language, Uh, The nation as a being, the nation as, uh, you know, an organic, as an organic life to it, as a destiny to it, and so on and so forth. But then you have also an additional dimension, which is, this is tied to a project related to getting rid of colonialism.
0: And specifically, the the, the artificial nation-state boundaries imposed by colonial powers. It's a form of nationalism that's explicitly pushing against that.
1: Right. This is a very important point, Daniel, because the two demands that these people care about are independence, but independence is not the only one. Because then you get into the other question, which is what are the boundaries of the independent nation that's going to happen? And and for them, uh, they had rejected the idea of dividing the Arab lands and certainly the former Ottoman Arab lands uh, into mini-statelets or what they saw to be mini-statelets because they considered that these Many stateless are weaker when they're separated and they could be much more effective in the international system if they were united. That's why they had to emphasize Arabness as a a dominant category, because they had to have a formula that could bring together Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Palestine and Jordan and the Hejaz and, you know, possibly beyond that to Egypt and other areas that had not been under Ottoman control for quite a while.
0: Yeah, in that sense, it's really not comparable to a lot of things, other examples in other regions of the world that we would think of when we think of nationalism, whether European or or elsewhere. It might be most comparable in a certain sense to Bolivarianism, though that is a Creole nationalism of settler elites, so it's not quite right either, but it is a it is a form of, of nationalism that is not bound to to existing nation-states, or it's a unifying, kind of um, universalizing nationalism.
1: Right, except that, uh, again, with Bolivarianism, it comes later, and it doesn't come out of a, an originally unified milieu.
0: I meant not Chavez's Bolivarianism. I meant Bolivar's.
1: Ah, Bolivar himself. Oh, that's a different story. Okay, so I thought you were referring to, to, to Bolivarianism. <laughs> Yeah, uh, um, you know, I'm 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 a product of a period when when we spoke of Bolivarianism. It was it was in reference to Hugo Chavez. So. Same. But yes, of course, uh, Simón de Bolívar. Yes, of course, uh, that 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 could be very comparable. But um, but again, what you mentioned about the colonial dimension is is very important. That milieu under Bolivarianism or under Bolívar, uh, and I'm not sure we can speak of Bolivarianism during the time of Bolívar because. Uh, maybe a more appropriate model is the Republicanism or other forms to understand uh, what he was trying to do. But but definitely there, there is a, a project specific to him that, that was going on. And that is, I agree with you, there are some parallels. However, the colonial power in that part of the world, in the colonial co- context of Latin America, the colonial power uh, did not divide an already existing united space. You know, it came and conquered the whole continent. <laughs> and invented divisions based on its needs, military, security, and other, and sometimes social realities, and sometimes previous imperial boundaries that were local to the region. But what was peculiar about what happened in in the former uh, Ottoman Arab lands is the political divisions and the geographic divisions had nothing to do with the previous reality. You know, it did not make sense. And the political elite that produced Arab nationalism, was an elite that used to be quite unified by the Ottoman political process. So l- let me elaborate on that. Uh, you know, people sometimes uh, think that, uh, that uh, you know, when you say they're unified, that you're trying to uh, say that Iraq is the same as Syria. No, that's not the point here. But the point is that they were all operating, for example, at the elite level in the Ottoman parliament or in the Ottoman press or within the Ottoman political movements, as uh, people belonging to the Arab provinces. And they spoke a common language, and they often intermarried, and they came from a similar milieu. And of course, recent writings, you know, we have writings on some of these figures, and now we have some biographies, like Laila Parsons is written uh, a biography of Fauzi Qawukhzi, who comes, of course, a bit from a different social milieu than, than the top elite one. But at the end of the day, he gets socialized into the uh, Ottoman officer class. And that becomes, you know, the officer class becomes an important political force, for example, in this period. We have others writing on, on the subject, uh, writing on the Ottoman officer class emerging across this region and being very effective in promoting challenges to colonialism, including armed rebellions and, and major revolts. So in the mandate scholarship, it's, it's quite established, this, this, this dimension by now. But what interests me specifically is the extent to which you had this connection between the rejection of these boundaries and the emergence of uh, future political movements that were to mobilize against. So not just Uh, you know, these rebellions that happened within national spaces and not just like uh, the trajectories of specific individual figures, but actually political parties and how the mandate ones differed from the ones that came after uh, has to do with contestations that took place during the period of the mandate. So what you find then is there's a deeply unpopular reality imposed on local spaces by denying some form of more unified futures. But also you find localized tensions. This is the the interesting thing about this question. And you know, Azmi Pshara has written about this. He calls it the Arab question. You know, he says in the 19th century, the big question was the Eastern question, which is what is to be done with the Ottoman Empire. And then in the 20th century, the big question becomes the Arab question, which is what is to be done with the former Ottoman uh, Arab provinces of the empire. you know. So if we look at the Arab question, if you have small statelets found, then you'll get a lot of regional contestation within. Them because then you have to forge local state identities that are not connected to a language-based nationalism or, a, a, or an ethnic-based nationalism. Uh, you have to concoct a new form of nationalism, in a way.
0: And this is all very convenient for Western powers.
1: Very convenient for Western powers, but also very inconvenient for them. Potentially, could be a headache. You know, if you were Britain, actually, you 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 had different options, and that's something I want. I want actually people to know that it's not a simple like here the empire is conniving to weaken a future Arab state by splitting them. It's more complicated than that, actually, because you could have a situation, empires sometimes consolidate states to control them even further. So just the fact that you you united as space does not mean that you've um, ensured that it's going to be stronger. Like you could unite it to control it more. And that's what the British eventually did in India, for example. You, you could centralize in an imperial manner. But here they had different set of calculations. They had to give portions to, to to France. They wanted to, and more importantly, they had a consideration that was fundamental to weakening the whole of the edifice of the mandate, which is to create a settler colony. Once you decide to create a settler colony, which of course was in Palestine, no matter what the reasoning is, and 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 you know, the people will tell you. Well, you know, there's biblical sanctioning to do that. You know, some people, were, if they're religious, they believe in that. Some people, they're sympathetic to the enormous suffering of Jews in Europe and, of course, anti-Semitism and the pogroms, of course, which we all are sympathetic to that hugely. But, uh, you know, uh, they'll tell you, well, that's enough reason to create a settler colonial project in this part of the world. And what, what, what people do not appreciate is, regardless of what your intentions are and what's behind them, Creating a settler colonial project in any part of the world disturbs the social fabric in enormous ways. It tears it apart in the area where the project is established, but it also destabilizes the whole region around that project. And we see this over and over again everywhere. It's, it's an immensely destructive process, <laughs> which is why that, had, that project had a, a, a very dividing influence on the future trajectory of the region.
0: And so we have to read the entirety of British colonial strategy through this period from the Balfour Declaration on.
1: I, th- I think we don't do enough of that. And I, I do fault, actually, some of my colleagues who do work on the mandates that do not do enough of that. Everybody will talk about Palestine, but not everybody will actually emphasize enough the interconnectivities between the establishment of Palestine, the overall nature of this order that was created, and the imagining of, of the, the, the future around it. Like, if they did not want to, for example, establish a settler colony in Palestine, then you would have had at least a Palestine mandate uh, that included Jordan, probably, and possibly it would have been all under Hashemite rule from Iraq to the Mediterranean. It would have been a different map potentially, but of course that was never a possibility, you know. And you did not want an Iraq extending to the boundaries of Palestine certainly, if it was not going to be friendly to settler colonial project in Palestine. So there are all sorts of uh, uh, complications there now. Of course, uh, the division between Transjordan and Iraq also had to do with uh, uh, historical contingency. You know, you had two brothers of the Sharif Hussein that needed to be placated by the British and given some prize at least, some consolation prize after they denied their father his unified Arab kingdom. And one of them was seen as uh, an important counterinsurgency figure. That's King Faisal because you know they brought him in the context of uh, responding to the first major anti-colonial revolt uh, against this British uh, and French imposed system, which was the Iraq Revolt. And that, that episode, of course, you know, happened so fast. I mean, already, no sooner had they, had they started operating, the British there, uh, they had to deal with, with like, uh, an enormous uh, challenge. This was in 1920. 1920 is just the, 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 the apex, but the preparations and the actual process happens even before. It's as soon as the British start landing. You know, there's mobilization. There's, uh, it's, it has to do with lots of factors. And it's important to note here that anti-colonialism is a multifactorial phenomenon. There are material reasons, there are ideological reasons, but there are also multiple ideologies that influence. If, if you were uh, in touch with Islamic tradition, you would have an anti-colonial Islamic tradition to appeal to. If you were influenced by nationalism and nas- the new nationalist ideologies of the 19th century, you definitely had very strong anti-colonial grounds to appeal to. If you were a rural uh, farmer and you were confronting the new tax collectors and the new forms of colonial rule that were uh, uh, emerging, the new forms of the state, you also had your own reasons. It's And, and certainly if you were part of the Palestinian peasantry that was suffering under settler colonization and was, was, was being essentially expelled from its land, uh, you also had your own reasons to, to confront colonialism. So all of these factors uh, built up to create uh, the revolts and the revolutions uh, in the period we're talking about. In addition, of course, to the existence of figures like Sata al Husseini and others that, that Uh, promote uh, nationalist ideologies and education. Uh, But it's important to look at the structural factors and not just uh, the individual figures here.
0: You just touched on the Iraqi rebellion of of 1920. What more broadly did the sort of anti-colonial politics that emerged during the mandate period throughout French and British mandatory territories look like?
1: What's interesting, Daniel, is that in almost all of these cases, we see uh, a situation where the urban centers and the countryside uh, unite, uh, at least temporarily. There are manifestations of rebellion in both, but that usually the countryside sustains it a bit longer, you know, or sometimes much longer. And that we see it Actually, in each one of the three main rebell- rebellious zones, or and we're talking here about great revolts, not small revolts here, okay? So uh, in Iraq, uh, between 1919 and 1920, you see this uh, effervescence of activity that then explodes, and you cannot just reduce it to one region or so on, even though they often emphasize, you know, the tribal dimension and, and so on, but you do see urban forms also. Those are the forms where the the nationalist uh, leaderships established a lot of influence. But the countryside sustains it. Same in Syria. Damascus goes into serious revolt. And actually, I don't know if people know this, but much of what we know about aerial bombardment of cities, and now that's a very difficult and painful topic for me as a Palestinian talking to you today today, as uh, uh, an important part of my country is being obliterated through aerial bombardment, which is Gaza, of course. Um, in, in the first major aerial bombardment of, an, uh, of a big urban center that's completely non-discriminate and like, uh, you know, in the colonial period was the, was the, was the bombardment, uh, French bombardment of Damascus. It was in, co- in the context of that revolt. And then this countryside, of course, sustains it longer. I mean, it's Huron, is the center of that revolt, but but you have you have it spreading to different parts of uh, of al the Sham. Uh, there's a good uh, an excellent dissertation that I was uh, involved in uh, by Sima Farah. Uh, I was on the on her committee. She's she's a fantastic. Uh, she holds a PhD from Rice, and she's now in Beirut. But she wrote about the uh, mobilization for the Great uh, Syrian Revolt in, uh, in Lebanon. In, in Jordan, you had mobilization. Even in, in Palestine, you had mobilization in support of the revolt. Very, very substantial. So these revolts acted as locomotives of uh, mobilization and change uh, and resource, resource mobilization across the region. But the amount of suppression that happened was enormous as well. In Syria and in Iraq, these were extremely traumatizing events for anybody that went through them. And they, they had direct effect on the emergence of future politics. So I'll give you an example, Daniel. The two key figures in the foundation of the Ba'ath Party, Michelle Aflaq and Salah okay. al-Din bitar both grew up in the Medan neighborhood of Damascus, which was the central part of Damascus that had you know, a core resistance in it around the time of their revolt. And Medan is is very connected to Horan, which is the grain-growing region uh, south of uh, Damascus. It is where the grain trade passes. And there's a strong relationship historically between the grain merchants there and the um, Horani leaderships that that, that carried out their revolt. So it became a hotbed of anti-colonialism. And you have this young Orthodox Christian uh, student, Michel Aflach, witness this violence along with his uh, colleague a young uh, Sunni Muslim student Salah Din Bittar who of course Salah Din by the way is is a name that has anti-colonial connotations even in this period especially because of course Salah Din was was uh, the Muslim figure that expelled the crusaders and liberated uh, Jerusalem for a while. So so it was but anyways Salah Din Bittar and Michel aflaq they came of age in that setting. They they saw the colonial violence. They saw, they experienced it. They talk about this in their recollections, and it's it's a really uh, defining moment for people. It it redefines politics, and not just in 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 Syria but across the area around it.
0: And you just referenced the Palestinian Great Revolt of I think nineteen thirty six. Colonial repression there was particularly brutal, and you already. Laid out that it was brutal all across the region, but particularly brutal in Palestine because it was in the service of a settler colonial project. Why
1: the political objective was much more brutal because the political objective in Syria that the French had, and of course they had multiple ones, and then they, they, they sometimes they wanted to divide the place, sometimes they didn't. And, you know, it was a complicated uh, set of political calculations, uh, and they had debates, of course, around them, but those had to do with how to uh, manage the perpetuation of colonial control over local space. Whereas in Palestine, the political objective was to settle more colonists. And you know, some people will tell you, well, the British weren't really committed to that and whatever. No Palestinian believes that they were not really committed to it. We don't believe the British uh, story that's uh, that, that's trying to make us feel sorry for them you know, about being confused and having multiple commitments and dual commitments. At the end of the day, the majority of the British political class, when push came to shove, they always picked the side of the colonists. And they always ensured that the colonial project will continue. And it's only the revolt that actually stopped them. Uh, and here we're getting into tricky uh, terrain.
0: This is the white paper, which briefly somewhat contradicts the Balfour Declaration.
1: Uh, Yes I mean it doesn't contradict the Balfour declaration but what it does is it places limits on immigration and it puts a, a potential timeline for independence potentially so so it's it's quite a vague again document but it's it's more favorable uh, to the objectives of uh, of the Palestinian independence movement although in reality of course it still gives the colonists a major opening and they do intensify uh, their strength uh, and they take over the whole country. So so it's not it's, it's by no means uh, what it, what it's often presented to be as some great conciliatory uh, document for the Arabs. And I actually have disagreements with some of my, even Palestinian colleagues, that have a positive assessment of it and say that things would have been different had the Mufti, for example, adopted it. Uh, and there is a whole Palestinian tradition. I mean, Rashid Khalidi and others write along these lines. I strongly disagree with them. I do not think that adoption of the white paper would have, would have changed or altered the situation in any major way, any major way. The British had created conditions that made it impossible for the Palestinians to protect themselves against the settler colonists that the British brought to the country. So this was not some attempt to really improve the Palestinian position. It was an attempt to, allow Britain to uh, perpetuate its control over the space during the time of the second world war. So it's what you would call morphine shots. It's kind of like what Biden does when he talks about a two state solution that he doesn't ever intend to actually enforce, uh, uh, you know, except maybe possibly in fake ways, you know, not a real state.
0: Or most recently that, uh, that Israel's gone over the top.
1: But yeah, Israel's gone over the top. So, you know, you authorize a genocide. You give the weapons for it. You're actually pretty much the perpetrator of it. But then you say, uh, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm trying to adjudicate between these two parties. I'm trying to help, you know, the other uh, party that's uh, that's aggrieved one." And um, it's it's well known uh, uh, imperial uh, practice. Uh, and we saw it very intensely during the Mandate period. And again, I don't want people to personalize this. This is not just, it's not a story of like, here's some evil British administrator and here's a, this is about a worldview. This is about structures. This is about processes that are inherent to these colonial realities, okay? Like it's a, it's a structural dimension it, it, and we have to understand it. Now, of course, personalities do matter, I you know, sometimes history can be changed uh, if there is a, a major transformation in the worldviews of certain figures and so on. And I don't want to, uh, you know, be demobilizing here. The important activism that takes place on the part of people that challenge these structures is, after all, geared towards creating the sort of change that will lead it will lead eventually to. Uh, to new types of political discourse and practice around these parts of the world. But that doesn't just happen. That's what I'm trying to say here. What's inherent to these structures is to oppress and and to subjugate. And and, and we see that when it comes to the Arab region very clearly, but again, we should not exceptionalize it. I mean, look at South Africa. I mean, there's a reason why South Africa now is intervening uh, so strongly in Gaza because they've suffered for years from Western complicity uh, uh, and and support. The ICJ was complicit during during the time of apartheid, when they refused to accept Ethiopia's case uh, at the time uh, against the the South African regime as it was invading and subjugating and destroying the people of Namibia. Colonial revolts uh, have an interconnectivity to them. They they mobilize Palestinians, Iraqis, people from Jordan, people from Lebanon, and people from Syria, and they often help each other in these revolts. They they create networks of support that cross these boundaries. Without these networks, none of these revolts would have survived. Actually,
0: what were the anti colonial nationalist organizations that took more formal leadership of anti colonial struggles in the in the twenties and then the thirties?
1: The form of the ideological party is not yet fully established at this stage as the dominant form. So what you have is various parties. There are political parties that get formed, but they're essentially representative of the old Ottoman notable classes plus the new professional classes organizing themselves that means that they don't always actually take charge of these revolts sometimes they're responding to them uh, and sometimes they're uh, adapting to them in some cases they contribute to their instigation but they don't have full control over them so for example the mufti in palestine the mufti of jerusalem has amin husseini uh, there's a lot of people that claim that he had no role in their revolt and so on and so forth uh, actually the british were right to think that he had a role in the revolt we know this because different political figures from that period, have talked about uh, support for rebellious acts. Did he want to explode their revolt, though? Not really. I think, you know, it, it was, he was hesitant to do it, but he had definitely connections with the folks that played a key role in it. And later on, his influence helped sustain it. To nationalize the revolt would have been difficult without full commitment from somebody who had such a deep amount of networks across the country. And this bit, I, I want people to think about it because the historical scholarship on this is often, again, quite dismissive of these figures, saying they ju- they're just reactive, that these things happen spontaneously. Certainly, the 36 revolt is, re- is, they're right about it in these terms. It's, nothing happens spontaneously in the world of, I'm a mean, scholar of revolutions, are involved. You need some element of organization to sustain it, you can start it. You can start a revolt spontaneously, but then without actual structures and cooperation from people who have control of these structures cannot be sustained. That's why, for example, now in the West Bank, we don't have a sustained revolt. Why? Because the people that have political networks there might not always be able to instigate a revolt, but they can always block one let's say if you're the leadership of Fatah, you're Mahmoud Abbas now, you have enough influence on the ground to prevent a full-scale revolt from happening. Because you can tell on people, you can co opt people, you have enough people you spend on that you could stop. Now, how long you could do that is a different question. And I do believe it's, a matter of, it's only a matter of time that you will have that exploding because it's unsustainable, the situation there. But for example, you compare that to the second intifada, It happened because Yasser Arafat eventually decided to support the idea of sustaining a revolt after the failure of the negotiations, and after it became clear to him that there is no real state, that he's not even going to be given the 22% of Palestine that uh, he thought he was going to be given for uh, ceding 78% of it. You know, he was trying to be a realist, he failed miserably because colonialism does not respect moderates or, or radicals or anybody. Colonialism has its own logic. It wants to expand constantly, okay? So once he realizes that, he starts a revolt uh, or he contributes substantially to the initiation of revolt. But without him, he could have suppressed it, by the way. You know, somebody like the Mufti by the 1930s, he has a national network to be able to suppress things. Same with Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas. They have a party network. They have Fatih, you know, and they have also a, a semi-straight structure, which is the PA. But with, the, with something like, let's say, the Syrian leaderships in the 1920s, the national ones, they did not have the same amount of control over all areas or influence in all areas. So the regional, regional variations matter a lot. If you have a strong local figure in Huron, like Sultan Pasha al-Atrash, for example, they could carry out a revolt in their area. And the same could take place in other uh, parts of the the region. For it to be sustained, you need intellectual classes to cooperate and so on. But again, um, the amount of influence a certain nationalist leadership or milieu has over a national space in formation, like those mandates that were that were being established at the time, will vary. The more they actually cooperate with the colonial authorities, the less likely that they will have that kind of influence to some extent when it comes to the legitimacy factor. That's why, for example, the, the, the Mufti in Palestine always had greater legitimacy than the Nashashibi clan, which were his competitors. They were seen as too close to the British they have their followers by the way and there's reasons for that following they had to do with local uh, social fissures from the past you know in palestine there were there were always moiety divisions there were um, two big divisions qais and yaman the, those divisions corresponded to some of the fissures that took place that the british later exploited you know they brought people from the alternative coalition essentially to undermine the emergence of a fully unified national space. But still, to get greater legitimacy and greater strength, you needed to show some degree of opposition to the colonial structure, even if you were negotiating with it. And that's why, let's say Yasser Arafat, he was negotiating with the Americans, with the Israelis, and some Palestinian intellectuals even went as far as considering him to be betraying the cause by doing so. But when he he was killed, as most Palestinians believe, we, most Palestinians believe he was, was poison. Now, that's not, not fully established, but there's great indications that suggest that. When that took place, you have hundreds of thousands of people going out to his uh, funeral. It was a big, organic day of mourning. You might even disagree with him and still go to the funeral. And it had to do with the fact that at the end of the day, he didn't end up signing the final. Uh, agreement which would have meant a, a full surrender of palestinian of many most palestinian rights uh so despite the fact that he signed oslo which was a huge blow <laughs> to the palestinian national rights still the the fact that he he took an oppositional stance later on gave him some grounding for for future legitimacy you know uh, in a, in a strange way mahmoud abbas will not get that for example same rules applied before Your relationship to colonial power influenced the level of popular, uh, your position in the popular imagination. And uh, today, and this is why this uh, so-called Biden uh, project of uh, eradicating Hamas is so so delusional, and same with with the Israeli one, and they're beginning to acknowledge how delusional it is. Because you're not going to be able to eradicate a structure that claims to be oppositional to the existing colonial structure. No matter how much you disagree with this ideology, even adherents that will disagree with its ideology locally will not reject or will not accept its expulsion from their local life in that setting. And I'm talking here as a historical you know, assessment based on studying many different colonial cases. It's very difficult. One interesting type of formation that you find here is congresses, national congresses. And they're similar to the what's happening in other anti-colonial uh, areas. India and South Africa later on. And of course, in Egypt you have a similar thing going on but it's it's initially called the delegation, the Weft. So that was the delegation that was sent to the peace negotiations conference. And again, the the rule that we've just mentioned, that even though the Weft collaborated with the British, it did get a lot of uh, local support because it was seen as uh the part of the elite that was also more committed to uh removing than 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 other more co-opted you know pro-British figures. So the, so yeah, so you had Congresses and delegations were important uh, as as spaces in, in this period. Those are quite different than classical party ideological parties as we know them. They're very different because what they end up being they don't have a clear ideological commitment per se, aside from a project of independence, for example, you know, or negotiating for independence. their Their social programs tend to uh, de- develop over time. Uh, but they are not. There is own debt of the of this formation, is not the social program. It's it's the independence program,
0: and it's more the the politics of the notables.
1: Politics of the notables intervenes in them hugely. Yes,
0: because they they are they are the local elite, and they are addressing the colonial powers and saying, "Please turn over the keys to us. We are the we are the established elite here."
1: Correct. Although, again, uh, I do want to warn: there is a scholarship in English that denigrates these people for, uh, and that's very suspicious of them for that and that pretends to be radical on that basis. And it's easy to pretend to be radical, Dan- uh, Daniel, without being radical because, uh, yeah, it's easy to attack nationalist elites in the West and to say that they have no contributions and whatever and so on. But I'm always very careful about that because they do play a role in the anti-colonial process.
0: And they were the leading they were the leading edge of that moment of development of, of national liberation politics.
1: Absolutely. They played a role in it. So, you know, it would be like saying, like, uh, completely dismissing MLK as as insignificant in the history of the civil rights movement. And I'm like, maybe my politics are closer to uh Malcolm X, maybe, maybe I I and and they in fact they are. I fi- I find of course, I don't buy into the idea that, that there's any freedom of justice uh, that was inherent to the system or that the constitution had any, you know, like any, any person who, who, who is on the left will be very suspicious of some of the things that, that MLK and other leaders of that type were saying, or Nelson Mandela for that matter, okay? But you can't just dismiss it. With Arab political figures, somehow it becomes really easy to dismiss them. And that has to do with Orientalism. The question then becomes: How do you do the critique? Is it by just reproducing this image of the corrupt uh, local Arab effendi, which is what basically the colonialists were doing? That's that's how they spoke about them. They spoke about them in denigrating ways. They dismissed them as as just completely driven by individual agendas. Of course, they had individual agendas. Many of these people were wealthy, not all, but many of them, and all of them were either belonging to the, you know, uh, old. Uh, dominant social classes or new professional classes that were ascending in the in the social ladder. That's important to note. Now are they a bourgeois class? Uh, are they a feudal class? I think we have to be skeptical about both characterizations here because uh, as somebody who takes Marxism very seriously, I think those terms have to be used with precision and have to be adjusted for local context. What what, it, what is the bourgeoisie without an industrial revolution, for example, you know, and and what it, what is what is the industrial proletariat without an industrial revolution, and what is, you know, all of these issues have to be uh, thought through, and of course there are local writers that have discussed them. Madie Amel has spoken of colonial mode of production. Uh, other local Marxist Arab writers have, have tried to grapple with the specificities of what do any of these categories mean under colonials? They are important. They're not to be dismissed, but they have to be adjusted to local space. When we use them, and of course, Arab movements use them all the time, but sometimes they use them in a way that was imprecise. You know, they'll call, for example, the leftist leadership, the bourgeois leadership, you know, and I'm like, well, a lot of them were landowners, for example. Why would you call them? uh, And they're old landowners, you know? It's like landed... Some of them were... Were new industrialists, and some of them were in finance, and uh, but then you have to be precise uh, when we're when we're doing that class analysis, um, and uh, of course the best scholarship on the region is very precise sure. around that, uh, like somebody uh, like Hanna Batatu, for example, uh, goes into exhaustive amounts of research to really analyze different backgrounds, and uh, and that's the sort of thing we 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 need to see more of.
0: Hanabatatu is the late, great Palestinian Marxist scholar of many texts, but most notably, I think, the old social classes and the revolutionary movements of Iraq.
1: Correct. Correct. And and honestly, like, uh, it's it's really great scholarship. I mean, it's not easy to read because it's long and it's exhaustive research and so on. But, um, you know, that's the sort of research that tells you something about social classes that takes takes the concept seriously. Um, and we
0: are going to get into the Iraqi Communist Party in later episodes.
1: And, and we'll talk about communist parties in general. You know, uh, of course, Daniel, when, when we're looking at this period as well, the beginnings of communism are starting to appear. When you were asking me about political parties in this period, and I, I mentioned some of the more mainstream ones, and I mentioned congresses and delegations and so on. But another form that, that develops at this stage is a completely different one, and that's the ideological party. This is the moment when the birth of the ideological party uh, is really, really, really anchored. And as a byproduct of the Bolshevik revolution in many ways, it plays a key role, and I think an understudied role. Uh, The colonialists almost preempted the influence that it was gonna have. So so they they instituted anti-Bolshevik laws before even any of these communist parties uh, existed and they were debating the dangers of Bolshevism in the region uh, before it even became a serious political phenomena. But that's because they knew that... They
0: they knew that some Arabs had made it to Baku.
1: That some Arabs had made it to Baku, but also the structural reality will eventually produce this challenge. There's no way to avoid it. So that's something to, to think about. There's sociological changes happening, and there's also the sort of colonialism they were establishing was exactly the sort of colonialism uh, that was being rejected uh, in the new Leninist vision for the world order that was uh, essentially expressed in in Baku. Uh, So we have here uh, a very interesting uh, situation developing. It's still a nascent phenomenon, but it becomes quite influential. And unfortunately, and this is the weird bit about it, Daniel, the soviet the existence of the soviet union made the phenomena possible the policy of the soviet union also at certain junctures uh, frustrated the phenomena and prevented it from expanding much more than it could have and and i, I we will get into that in in great detail la- later on but uh, but i i do think it's worth emphasizing that this is the period when you start seeing these parties developing so you know, in, in both Egypt and Palestine, uh, you start seeing in the 1920s this development. And then in Iraq, of course, uh, we get to, the, uh, to that development uh, by 34. And really, uh, you know, you have the, the Communist Party there becomes, in Iraq, actually, it achieves uh, the greatest prominence out of any, any of the uh, zones in which the communists operated. So it's a, it's a special zone for, for the study of the Communist Party. When we're looking at that phenomenon, it's another uh, type of uh, structure that's emerging. Now, what's interesting about all the forms that I've described to you is that they were national forms that corresponded to the boundaries of the states as they were established by Britain and France. So these different parties were operating locally in Syria, in Palestine, They had collaborations, they had transnational collections and so on, but at the end of the day, they were separate entities corresponding to these separate boundaries. That's not the way people wanted it initially, but they adjusted to it. You know, and initially, of course, you had the first Arab Congress, We're speaking of Congresses. The first Arab Congress, which was held in in Damascus, included delegates from Palestine and from Jordan and from Lebanon. You know what I mean? And they all, you know, pledged allegiance to Faisal and, of course, demanded independence and unity and and so on. But then you ended up having a dissolution of that after the Battle of Meselun, after the expulsion of Faisal. The political moment changed. People had to readjust to the idea that, you know what, it's no longer on the horizon, to have a unified Arab space, given the fact that the the French and the British have militarily uh, resolved that they won't be. They came and forced it through. When the French army entered Syria and defeated the forces of Faisal in in the Battle of Maysalud. So local space becomes the main political space for these parties. Strangely enough, and I've written about this before, the same applies to the communists. And that's a critique that people made later on. You know, intellectuals like Yassin Hafez and others have made this point over and over again, that the local space, the way it operated for the communists, uh, was, was quite strange. Because, uh, and this again had to do probably with mistakes done by the Comintern and and by those thinking about these matters in Moscow. Uh, and the comparison that's made by people like uh, Yasin al and others, we, unfortunately, people cannot read it because it's in Arabic, unless they know Arabic. But if they want to, they, they could go back to those writings in the 60s and 70s that have made this point. Uh, Arab radical writings have discussed it extensively. But if you look at the history of that period, compare uh, so-called Indochina to the Arab region. The Comintern pushed for a unified communist party in the French colonies that comprised what the French called Indochina. So they lumped the Vietnamese and the Cambodians and (laughs) the people from Laos together, even though they were against that. And even though their main leaderships were saying there are significant national differences between us, we don't want to be. And of course, um, what happens there is that people like Ho Chi Minh rebel against that and establish separate parties eventually. In the Arab lands, it's the opposite. Instead of a unified Arab party, that reflects the fact that this is a common linguistic zone, Uh, the Soviet Union accepts the colonial division of the space. So they end up endorsing separate parties. And that's a big difference between them then and the Arab nationalist movements, like the Ba'ath and like the movement of Arab nationalists, which end up operating on a pan-Arab level. So they they're not they they they're not just operating on the level of Jordan and Iraq there's no you know there's there's local branches in Jordan and Iraq but there's a national leadership that coordinates the whole region so so mobilizationally and organizationally it's a very different structure and it has implications for the strength or weakness of these movements when you have a a, a broader regional coordination strategy you're not subject to the whims of one specific state. If you're hit in one state, you can go to another. You can, and of course, I should note that communists do have uh, internal cooperation amongst all the CPs in the region, and they do develop that. But that's very different than being part of one unified command. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis
0: about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Jewish Currents, the historic magazine of the Jewish left, published quarterly, in print, and daily online. Subscribe today to receive their upcoming special issue, a book-length reader featuring work published online after October 7th, alongside newly relevant archival pieces with new introductions. Subscriptions start at $48 per year. But in a special offer for DIG listeners, they're 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, DIG caps, 2024, no spaces. You'll also receive Jewish Currents' exclusive winter gift, Kaula Ibrahim's play A Knock on the Roof, which follows a woman in Gaza facing the horror of imminent Israeli bombardment. DIG listeners will be especially interested in Jewish Currents' podcast, On the Nose, Recent episodes feature expert discussions about South Africa's case at the ICJ charging Israel with genocide, and labor unions' fraught relationship with Zionism. Find On The Nose wherever you get your podcasts, and please subscribe to Jewish Currents. We've gotten so many compliments about the work that we've been doing over the past few months here at The Dig, and that work simply would not be possible without the analysis provided by Jewish Currents. Subscriptions start at $48 per year. But in that special offer for DIG listeners, they are 50% off with the code DIG2024. That's one word, D I G 2024. Capital D I G 2024. What I want to discuss next is what does Islamist politics look like during the mandate period? Is Addin Al Qassam a Syrian preacher and militant? He I think, started out supporting the Libyan resistance to the Italian invasion of Libya. He fought against French, the French in Syria. He organized armed resistance in Palestine. And today, notably, Hamas's military wing, the, the Qassam Brigades, is named after him. But at the time, my sense is that much Islamist politics was rather quietist. What, what was this larger, diverse landscape of Islamism? What did that look like during the mandate period? And how how did it relate and compare to rival nationalist or communist currents?
1: Um, very good question, Daniel. And uh, I want to start by questioning uh, the term Islamism. We have to be careful around it because, and of course, uh, people who work in this field are very aware of that. What does it even mean? Would we talk of Christians as Christianists, for example, uh, is anybody who's pious, engaged in politics? But Definitely, uh, people like al Qassam relied on uh, religious uh, imagery and sometimes doctrine uh, in pursuing anti-colonial agendas. And they definitely used religious spaces to promote these agendas. So that, that is an important element to the story. But we should uh, also note and distinguish between that and later on the creation of uh, uh, specific political parties For example, that had an emphasis uh, on utilizing uh, Islamic themes and language or that claimed to be restoring uh, a certain Islamic golden age or so on and so forth. There's there's multiple stories, multiple parties, multiple manifestations uh, of the phenomena that people refer to as Islamism and under which they blanket actually uh, many different things that are quite distinct. So I want to start by emphasizing that. But when we're looking at people like Qassam, first, Qassam uh, and his trajectory is a good indication of uh, something that people have forgotten, which is the popular mood that had existed uh, uh, towards the end of Ottoman rule, the popular mood around anti-colonialism. And often that uh, mood was exacerbated by situations in which uh, the Ottoman Empire had lost or was unable to defend uh, Islamic lands. and one of, one of those cases was the Italian invasion of Libya. Uh, there was a huge amount of mobilization to try to prevent that invasion and to contribute to the resistance against it. And um, we know uh, that there were fundraisers, uh, that there were uh, calls for volunteering uh, across uh, the Ottoman lands and beyond around that. Similarly, you had the uh, different calls uh, that uh, that utilized uh, uh, religion and the idea of Islamic lands being occupied uh, or uh, lost to uh, powers, uh, to European powers that were actually Christian in terms of their uh, outlook, even if they claimed to be secular states. Uh, they, when it came to their relationships uh, with with the Muslims, they very much viewed themselves as as part of uh, a civilizing. Uh, uh, mission. They, they believed in Christian uh, su- supremacy and superiority. Old antagonistic uh, uh, analogies that drew on things as early as the as crusades and so on. Now, sometimes they were also careful to avoid uh, talking about this too much when they were establishing their rule locally. But definitely, uh, it was uh, part of the, the equation. There is an, uh, uh, there is an Islamophobic uh, uh, dimension to, to these colonial politics. Um, and I think uh, much of the critique of Orientalism that was uh, established by Edward Said and others, and even before that by people like Abdelatif Tebawi, who we talked about. You know, the Islamic dimension is so important to that. Uh, you know, there there is a, a severe antagonism towards uh, these lands, but of course, the material process is what is what mattered the most. Uh, this was people coming under domination uh, of an, of these European powers and. Uh, that caused that had ripple effects across the region. So a preacher from a small town on the Syrian coast, like Jabli, which is where al Qassam comes from, who definitely was imbued with uh, what uh, you would call Islamic reformist principles. When he had studied uh, in uh, Al Azhar with some important uh, figures, uh, he had uh, interacted with uh, thought uh, that called for. Uh, the reconciliation between religious doctrine and modernity uh, towards a project of combating uh, colonialism but also initiating uh, an economic and social and political uh, renaissance of sorts. Now, what is interesting about him is that he becomes convinced quite early on as a result of these experiences that you cannot deal with these European powers except through the methods that they utilize, which is force. It's not about dialogue. It's not about begging them to be more humane. These people do not listen to petitions and and uh, um, conciliatory moves. Um, there's no kumbaya moment possible with colonialists that are out there to dominate your land. In the same way that had, for example, Syria invaded Italy, the Italians would not be too keen on starting dialogue groups and discussions and uh, writing petitions to them. Syrians, uh, telling them to be uh, more merciful towards them and so on. So that was the outlook there. And Qassam was committed to that notion that it's not going to work that way, that you need to have uh, military capacity. And he indeed, uh, uh, you know, applied that to himself. He engaged uh, in those struggles. Uh, When he came back to Syria, of course, after Syria got invaded by the French, he was also involved in in local resistance and then had to seek refuge in Palestine. And by the early 20s, you have a a, a trend where some uh, Syrian uh, anti-colonial organizers were indeed seeking refuge in places like Transjordan or Palestine because those were not under French rule. They were under... British rule, so the rules around them would be more lax. They could uh, possibly escape or even not be monitored by the, by, the, by the French. Even though, of course, the French sometimes would try to uh, get people like that uh, through applying pressure on the British government. Uh, uh, they would try to get them handed over. But in any case, Hassan ends up in Haifa. And it um, uh, benefits from the presence of civic organizations like the Muslim Young Men's Association, which again appears as a result of what is seen as, as almost a missionary push, uh, or there's a fear of a missionary push on the part of uh, Muslim communities that had come under European colonialism, uh, and European colonialism that, of course, uh, was under the rule of uh, Christian nations, which uh, in many cases uh, allowed for intensified missionary activity. In some cases, openly. So, in response to that, you had the emergence of structures like the Muslim Young Men's Association, which became an important avenue. Of course, those came after the establishment of the Christian Young uh, Men's Association, the uh, YMCA's, in the in 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 the region. So, um, uh, he benefited from the presence of an infrastructure like that. He established good connections with uh, uh, different community leaders in the Haifa region. And um, through his interactions, he was able to build a base eventually. Now, he became uh, a preacher in uh, in several mosques and and ended up uh, eventually becoming the preacher of the Istiklal Mosque. Uh, And he developed linkages with uh, members of what became the Istiklal Party, the, the Independence Party. Um, it was starting to have a greater presence on the Palestinian political scene, especially in the Haifa region, which uh, was a region undergoing rapid sociological transformation and in which there was actually a working class, a newly forming working class, because you had a set of industries relating to the port, relating to uh, different British uh, um initiatives uh, centered around this important strategic location. Remember, part of the reason why the British needed Palestine was the port of Haifa. Of course, it wasn't the only one, but that was one of their major strategic considerations. When you look at, uh, as as I did at their early discussions, you know, during the, the, the Great War, that was part of the discussions they were having. So they had a lot of investment there. And that meant that you had Uh, the most substantial working class Palestinian population uh, there. And many of these people came from the countryside in different parts of uh, northern Palestine, including from uh, a region that is uh, today a hub of resistance and and was a hub of resistance back then, uh, which is the Jenin region. And uh, of course, Qassam builds a very strong set of connections with that region, ends up launching uh, guerrilla warfare from it. In 1935, he he, he commits to that. So people like him end up adopting a politics that relies on the working class and the peasantry, that very much rejected uh, the notability, even though it established some connections with notables that were on the more... Uh, radical end of the spectrum, like the Independence Party, like Hezbollah, and Qassam made statements to this effect. After he he was killed by the by the British, there was a eulogy written uh, by one of the notables wrote a eulogy in in Palestine, the major Palestinian paper at the time, in which he said like uh, that Qassam told him that he rejects uh, what he called quote unquote your civilization, your fake civilization. And that he, his faith is not in the, in the notables. He did not believe that they were capable of liberating the country. His faith was in the uh, workers, the poor people, and the peasants. These were the people he dealt with. These are the people he preached to. Uh, these were uh, his congregation. Uh, he said that uh, he believed in them because uh, they were closer to the land uh, and they were uh, stronger uh, and they were more will, willing to sacrifice, the, and that uh, they had nothing to benefit from the colonial system. Essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing basically what he was telling this guy. And that, that was his, basically his theory. So, So what we're seeing here is an interesting example of somebody who you might consider to be engaging in what people would call Islamism. But actually what he's promoting is anti-colonialism but through a form of liberation theology, almost, he's not calling it that, but that's effectively what it is. Uh, it's uh, its base is 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 uh, the salt of the earth. It is the wretched of the earth. It is the the working class and 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 the and the peasantry. His uh, uh, commitment is to a pathway of direct clash uh, with colonial authorities. And here. It was quite different from a lot of the established Palestinian leaderships who used to, for much of the 20s, used to try to placate Britain and to. they were wary of clashing with it directly. And instead they were promoting a politics of negotiation with Britain while demanding a direct clash with Zionists and the Zionists. The fear that had animated these classes, they were afraid that uh, a direct clash with, with the imperial authority would benefit the settler colonists, essentially, and would end up in destroying uh, indigenous capacity. You know, some people attribute their uh, conciliatory politics with the British only and solely to self-interested motives. And I think definitely some of them were purely self-interested and reflected definitely their class interests here. But I also do take very seriously the analysis of uh, Palestinian Marxist thinkers like Hassan Afani that talk about the fact that what we could call the Palestinian bourgeoisie, even though I, I, I do warn about easily uh, you know, using this concept in relation to Palestine, and what people call also the Palestinian feudal leaderships, uh, which again, I warn about that because I don't think it's exactly a bourgeoisie or feudalism, but it's something close to that, okay? We, we shouldn't forget that it was also a national bourgeoisie in many ways. So they had, they had some of them did have a patriotic interest because they understood that the full realization of their own class interests, and again, this is not an analytical understanding. This is actually coming out of structural reality, cannot happen under colonialism fully, uh, and definitely not under settler colonialism. And that's the difference between them and, let's say, the ruling class in places like uh, Syria—not ruling class at that stage, but you know the dominant social class in Syria at the time—of old landed, uh, you know, characters and and uh, and also new professionals and financiers and and others—they they differed slightly from the or in significant ways from the Palestinian one in that they did not confront the settler colonial reality. That threat creates a different uh, kind of reality when you are dealing with imperial. Authorities alone, it's different than when you're dealing with an empire and a settler-colonial formation. So what's what's interesting about Qassam then in, in this setting is that he's using a religious message, but he has broad national appeal, including amongst uh, Palestinian Christians, by the way. He was a venerated figure uh, by many sections of Palestinian society because he was seen primarily as a resistance figure as a resistance figure who's exposed uh, the failure of the previous quietist uh, uh, politics that had prevailed uh, in the past under uh, leaderships that were afraid of uh, the uh, imperial power crushing the Palestinian population strongly. But uh, also what's what's clear about him is that he's actually offering a radical critique of these leaderships and in many ways, it's a class-based critique. This is what's, what I find astonishing about it, Daniel. When we actually look at it closely, yes, this is a religious figure, and definitely he's a mosque preacher, so he's conservative on multiple social issues. This is not somebody who's going to be, for example, socially liberal, okay? Uh, even though, of course, he's, he's not as nearly as austere as as the stereotypical image of a site preacher is. But he would be as conservative as your any local vicar that you would encounter. You know, these are men of faith and religion. They will rely on religious texts to govern their worldview and outlook. And he really believed in religion. However, somebody like him was essentially offering uh, a class-based critique of the top leaderships in the, in the country. He was emphasizing the role of the working class and the peasantry because these are the people he, he lived with. You know, he was so integrated into those structures. And because he was preaching in a mosque, he had already access to a mass space of mobilization that is quite incredible. And his speeches were strong. So he attracted a massive congregation uh, and was able, as a result, to carry out a program uh, that is radically anti colonial, more radical. Uh, than any program put by any other figure at the time. And this is not something to, you know, dismiss easily. And we've seen it happen over and over again in multiple colonial contexts, but also in multiple social justice contexts. I mean, we know that in, even in the United States, where we're sitting at the moment, uh, there were uh, many cases in which liberation theology or was important, you know, uh, certainly in the civil rights movement. We had, we had uh, definitely elements of that. So I think it's important to understand Qassam in that light. Uh, you know, especially because sometimes in colonial narratives, people like him are presented as zealots and, you know, and as uh, just uh, uh, people out there promoting hatred. Certainly when it comes to Islam, unfortunately, uh, sometimes we have these images. People cannot conceive of Islam being a global religion with billions of followers that has multiple currents within it, but also that has emancipatory potential sometimes. Okay? Not always. Same with Christianity. You know, these are big religions. Sometimes Christianity can have emancipatory potential. Some of the liberation theology preachers and so on. It doesn't mean that I will, for example, agree with everything they believe in. I wouldn't base my politics on a religious text, but... Assam certainly belongs to that pedigree.
0: Let's turn to let's turn to Ba'athism, one of the most consequential Arab political movements not not least because national variants of the Ba'ath Party ultimately governed both Syria and Iraq for for decades in Iraq until the 2003 US invasion and in Syria to the present day surviving even a brutal civil war. But at this point I want to discuss the foundation of the Ba'ath Party in Damascus and also also its foundational ideology. We're going to keep returning to the Ba'ath throughout this narrative as we go over the decades. But, but let's take Ba'athism piece by piece in terms of its beginning. As an ideology, a movement, and a party, what was the ideology that thinkers and leaders like Michel Aflak, Salah al-Bitar, and Zaki Arsuzi developed?
1: So uh, I want to start by distinguishing between Aflak and Bitar and Zaki Arsuzi. Often in official histories of the party, uh, and of course in common histories, they'll tell you that it came out of the merger of Zaki Arsuzi with Aflaq and Bittar. In reality, honestly, the Baath is Aflaq and Bittar. Zaki Arsuzi was a prestigious figure that they benefited from, uh, but the core ideology uh, was developed by those two. That's not something that everybody knows about, including a lot of Baathists. Because, again, the official story is quite different than the historical trajectory itself. The Aflaq al-Bittar loved to pay homage to Zaki Arsuzi. He was from a different region. He was from a different generation. He had established earlier the the name, of course. They used essentially a name that that, that, that he had used. Uh, but uh, essentially, if you look at the main ideological features, those those guys were the, the powerhouse or the powerhouses in that party. And they come from different backgrounds. Zaki Arsuzi was very much shaped by the experiences in Iskandarun, which is initially after the Ottoman Empire was split. Uh, you had problems in the borderlands, Daniel, and I, I. people need to understand this. There are areas that are heavily mixed uh, in what is now northern Syria and southeastern Turkey. They're ethnically mixed. Uh, they have a Turkish composition, they have an Arabic composition, they have a Kurdish composition, they have an Armenian composition. And of course, some of this diversity was assaulted by events like the Armenian genocide, like the Hamidian massacres earlier. But then you still had major diversity going on in multiple regions, including Iskandarun. Now, in the case of Iskandarun, the majority there was, was Arab, but there was a substantial Turkish minority. And it's a, it's a mixed area. And many families actually were also intermixed between the two. So initially, the, the French put it under the, the, the Syrian mandate, but Ataturk never recognized that. And he exerted uh, substantial pressure on the French to cede Iskanderon to to Turkey. And the minute they do that, uh, and as part of a process that people like Zekul Arsuzi saw as being illegal and went against, uh, and that was essentially rigged in their, in, their, in their opinion, what ended up happening was the Arab population of that region saw this as a colonial plot uh, that undermined their position and that emphasized and illustrated uh, the need for national politics similar to Turkish nationalism, the same way that Turkish nationalism was able to acquire this land, the the only way to acquire it back would be through Arab nationalism. Now, of course, ideology was not just about Iskanderon, but places like Iskanderon on the borderlands, you know, often uh, created situations of ethnic and national tension that encouraged anti-colonial feeling eventually, uh, especially in situations like this, where this uh, part, uh, had been uh, seen as an integral part of Syria by people like Ezekiel Arsuzi, and for it to be ceded by colonial power was a big disaster for them. Now, Michel Aflaq and Salah din Batar come from a different part of the country. They're not from that region. That region is far away from Damascus, it's in the northwest of the country, it's on the Mediterranean coast. They come from the capital city, they come from Damascus, they come from the Maidan, which is the heart of uh, Damascus's connections with Hauran. We spoke a bit about it earlier. And they were shaped by the events of the great revolt in Syria between 1925 and 1927, because Medan was a core organizing space for that, and a fighting space as well. So they saw colonial counterinsurgency at play. They had many grievances with the colonists. And uh, in the case of Aflaq, and this is something that uh, we should address because uh, people often comment on this. He definitely comes from a religious minority background. He is a, a Syrian Orthodox Christian. And people have often commented on the, the fact that several major Arab nationalist formations and leftist formations were founded by minorities. For example, uh, the movement of Arab nationalists, the big ideological founding figure is somebody we're going to talk about He's, he also was a Christian from Damascus as well. Christian and Jewish leaders played a big role in establishing communist parties in the, in the region. So people like uh, Aflaq, uh, like Kosti Zreik and others, uh, they come from mixed neighborhoods. They're involved in national politics in a major way. But also, politics that are national uh, or socialist, you know, so the nationalist and the socialist traditions appeal to them because they are supra-religious. They go above sectarian differences within a community. And as a result, they can protect against majoritarian uh, religious tendencies. Uh, So they make sense organically to people like that.
0: It's a sort of universalism and and ecumenicism that Makdisi talks about in terms of like the modern Arab identity being big enough to encompass so many different types of of Arab, but if uh, for a communist, even even more universal, because beyond beyond Arab,
1: and that's where the ecumenicism we have to be careful around it in relation to this politics. I mean, the the concept works for for the old Ottoman politics and some of the mandate ones, but I would I would argue for more radical traditions, both of the nationalist and the communist and socialist uh, varieties, sometimes they don't view it as religions coexisting or congregating, because that's what ecumenicism means actually. Sometimes they wanna erase religious <laughs> difference in a way. Uh, I mean, that's a, an aspiration that, that existed in some cases. Uh, they wanna put religion on the on the side. So a, there is an anti-clerical uh, uh, dimension to, that's not often announced in these programs, but that many of these people have utilized in the past. Now, later on, for example, in the contemporary period, many communists and leftists have adjusted their stance. They have a more nuanced discussion of religion. And I'm, I'm even engaging with you in that, in that you know. But that's, that wasn't always the case early on. But also we should remember that in this case, uh, the religious establishment was not weaponized against them in the same way yet. That, that was to come later. This early stage, there is a common interest in anti-colonialism. Sometimes you had connections between these folks and some of the key religious figures. But definitely, Faisal Makhdisi's framework is very important for understanding the mainstream top leaderships at this stage. All the old Ottoman leaderships uh, were, were really influenced by that ecumenical vision. But then you also had people that really wanted to overcome religious uh, difference uh, and superseded eventually. So they were emphasizing the nation. Uh, if you were emphasizing the nation as, as the main unit or class as the main unit, you're really advocating something beyond the ecumenical. Your, your project is different. But on that note, the emphasis on nation and class in the case of the bath, is widely misunderstood often because people don't look at the early formation, intellectual formation of Aflaq and Bitar enough. And some people do look at it, but not adequately, not through their prison. And I think it's important here to go back to their own documents and writings and, and see that these folks, when they initially went to study in France, you know, after finishing high school in their neighborhood, Medan, which was a major anti-colonial hub, they end up going to the colonial uh, metropole and they're studying there. Like many of uh, fu- the future anti-colonial leaderships across the world, including Ho Chi Minh, for example, and others. And there in in an atmosphere in 1930s Paris, when you're going in that environment, you really are interacting with the left as the major welcoming space, or the only space that has welcoming elements for any figure that is coming from the colonies and that's critical of uh, the situation of colonials. So uh, they do find a set of connections established with the left in France, and especially with the Communist Party. As students, they, they, they develop those linkages and, and they definitely have an, an, an interest there. But that does not last long because what they find out is that despite the fact that at key moments, Communist Party in France and, uh, of course, the Soviet Union, which, which in many ways was influencing the politics of the French Communist Party and other parties uh, across the world at the stage, they considered them to be not anti-colonial enough when it came to the Syrian local sphere. And that becomes especially the case in uh, situations like 1936, where the Communist Party in France essentially prioritizes the Soviet agenda of building a broad-based coalition against fascism, essentially, which means not pursuing direct clash with the government over the colonial question. And as a result, you see um, the French national unity government that's founded at that stage is viewed as a colonial power locally, but you find that communists are forced or are requested not to critique it enough during this period, including Arab communists
0: because it's presented as an anti-fascist government in in France. Correct. The the Baath even though they were would ultimately embrace what they called Arab socialism, they were consistently even pretty vociferously anti-communist. Why why were they so stridently anti-communist? Is this because of their their experience in Paris and the relationship with the French Communist Party as part of the French colonial power that that you were just discussing?
1: They, they were sympathetic initially to communism and they had relations with different socialists and communist figures in Paris, as, as you rightly emphasized. They were studying at the Sorbonne. That was part of the intellectual life there and political life. When they came back, they joined a circle that was around the Syrian Lebanese Communist Party. They became essentially fellow travelers of that party when they, when they returned to Syria in 1933. But they had a major disillusionment with that party after uh, the shift in uh, communist policy that was undertaken at the 7th uh, Comintern Conference, which was a pretty important event for the colonial world in general. Because in the 7th in the Comintern Conference, the priority was a European priority. It was not a colonial priority for the, for the Comintern. Uh, and the European priority for them was to support the popular government, popular front, government in France. And
0: this Congress is in, in 1935.
1: Correct. But, but, but then you have the emergence of the Popular Front in France, and the commitment in, in, in thirty-six is to support that. The local parties in, in thirty-six, the communist parties in the region, end up supporting the Popular Front at a time when both Syria and Lebanon were having a direct clash with the colonial authorities. So in a way, the, the, in, in a strange twist of fate the local communist parties are having to take a more accommodationist policy, even though they had been advocating for years before, more radical policy in relation to the colonial power. And this is part of the complication that you have when you have to take your cues for the Comintern in Moscow in relation to local communist policy at, at, at home. That's something we'll talk about later on. But in this case, that becomes a major source of disillusionment for Aflaq and Bitak they start writing critiques of the French government, but also more importantly, the Syrian Lebanese Communist Party. They were accusing it of becoming more concerned of combating fascism in Europe than fully confronting the colonialist agenda. So that's, for them, a major source of critique. They started then developing a theoretical framework that diverged from Marxism while retaining some socialist commitments and elements but Marxist theorists would not see them as, as really fully socialist, okay? Because they, they do not prioritize class analysis. They start from the nation. So especially in 1944, Aflak starts articulating this uh, vision in his critique of Marxism. And he actually counterpoises uh, it to socialism. He uh, contrasts Marxism to socialism. He says that Marxist communism was a byproduct of European as opposed to Arab realities, and that it was born out of, and here I'm quoting him, the West's, quote, conflicting fanatic nationalisms and its inflated industries, uh, end of quote. And he's saying that in the Arab context, it was fighting what he called non-existent illnesses uh, that distracted Arabs from their real problems. Again, I'm quoting him again. He says, communism wants to destroy nationalist fanaticism in a nation whose nationalism has not yet formed, and it's fearing for other nations and global peace, you know, it has fear uh, that the Arabs would threaten uh, other nations and global peace at a time when the Arabs are ruled by others. So he's saying that, that look, all of these local communists are talking about nationalism being bad, are talking about uh, the problems with it, about fa- the fanaticism around it. But they're really referring to realities in Europe has nothing to do with Arab nationalism, which, you know, as far as he's concerned, hasn't yet been really fully developed. <laughs> so that's, that's why he referred to it as non-existing illnesses. For him, nationalism is about opposing colonialism, really. But through a vision that borrowed from the European nationalist language, uh, certain uh, important key uh, imageries and themes. So the very title of the party, the Bath, the renaissance, is about the renaissance of a nation, its rebirth after being subjected to um, a, a situation of erasure. You know, this idea and the main slogan of the Ba'ath was Ummatun Arabiya it's a, a single a united Arab nation with an eternal message. So this notion is definitely uh, one. Uh, that relies on European imagery. This notion that the nation has a mission, that it needs to be reborn. However, however, we should emphasize that it's not the sort of nationalism that emphasizes inferiority of other nations or that suggests uh, that that has an internal supremacist uh, dimension. At this stage, for sure. Later on, of course, some forms of Ba'athism start developing chauvinist tendencies in relation to internal minority questions. Some Ba'athists, and and, and here, by the way, the regional and class elements play a big role in this, but some Ba'athists in Syria and certainly in in Iraq develop, for example, anti-Kurdish sentiments. Not all Ba'athists, and again, it's important here not to speak uh, of it in, in, in in a way that's too generalizing, But you do have a wing of the bath that that develops chauvinist tendencies towards minority questions like that and ethnic minority questions like that. However, at this stage, when Aflaq and Bitar are developing their theory, it is not a chauvinist theory at this stage.
0: In our next conversation, we're going to talk about the Ba'ath Party merging briefly with the Arab Socialist Party. But the Ba'ath Party, for all of its anti-communism, does, from 1947 on articulate a commitment to a certain sort of socialism. What is that socialism for the Ba'ath Party?
1: So, uh, Daniel, what's, what's interesting is that in 1947, when Aflaq and Batar eventually decide to, to establish the, the, the Ba'ath Party, and they, they do the first conference of the party uh, in that year, they actually adopted socialism as part of their agenda. And the party's constitution at the time stipulated that, and I'm, I'm, I'll quote it here, the Arab Ba'ath Party is a socialist party. It believes that socialism is a necessity emanating out of the core of Arab nationalism and is the ideal system that allows the Arab people to achieve its potential and enables the full blossoming of that people's genius, guaranteeing rapid growth in the nation's moral and material production, as well as close fraternity among its individuals. Now, there's clearly an interest in socialism here. There's clearly a commitment to it announced. However, what kind of socialism? It's very vague, uh, but also the formulation subordinated socialism to the process of national formation. You know, socialism is, for, is serving national formation. It's not national formation is a step towards socialism or, and this was supplemented with the bath's commitment to tackling the social question in a manner that avoided alignment uh, in the newly emerging Cold War. So we can't read these formulations without also remembering that all political parties at this stage had to basically discuss the, the, the context of the Cold War. So every party uh, had to had to make its position clear in relation to it. Now, the bath at this stage had a clear position on the old colonial powers, on Britain and France, as well as their... Larger global ally, which is the United States. Um, this was partly had to do with uh, the policies of these countries, but also uh, with what took place in Palestine a few months later. But there, there was already the run-up to the, the the loss of Palestine was was beginning, and and the the Baath leaderships were very concerned. They don't want to be seen as taking. A fully pro-Soviet line, although they were, of course, closer to the uh, Soviet line than they were to countries that they were uh, already skeptical of, like Britain, France, and by extension the United States. So, it's a tricky uh, set of considerations we have to look at when we're when we're reading the political map here. Communist parties are different; they they follow the Soviet policy throughout. And they follow it to the letter, even sometimes when it sacrifices their local interests and affects their own local growth.
0: That was the second episode of Tharua, the DIG's new series on 20th century Arab politics with Abdel Razak Takriti, who teaches history at Rice University a scholar of Arab and Palestinian revolutionary movements. He's the author of Monsoon Revolution, Republicans, Sultans, and Empires in Oman, and the co-author of The Palestinian Revolution Digital Humanities Website, an incredible resource that will be back online soon. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that revolutions are the locomotives of history, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives and newsletters at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter and now also Instagram at thedigradio and do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes or Spotify or wherever, also rate and review us positively. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling other people to check out the podcast, please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly or annual contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge.